You're listening to the Think Christian podcast, where it was inevitable that one day we were going to talk about you too. Today is that day. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net and your host. I feel like I've shown great restraint. Over the four years that we've been doing this show, we've never really talked about you too. They're my favorite band, probably my favorite band of my lifetime, meaning they've been active while I've been intentionally listening to music. Their music is also deeply theological, so sort of a no-brainer for us. Well, we are going to talk about U2 today in the context of a new book by Bono, the group's frontman. The book is called Surrender, and it's something of a spiritual memoir. Now, what Bono shares there, especially about the band's early struggles to reconcile their Christian beliefs with dreams of being in a rock and roll band, that reminded me about my own experience many years ago coming out of a Christian college and hoping to pursue a career in film criticism. I didn't see those things as being in opposition, but I didn't see a clear path ahead either. I really wish I had this book back then to help me think about how to hold my faith in more mainstream Christian circles. But it's still helpful now, especially as I do have a foot in that mainstream media world outside of what I do here at Think Christian. Eric Danielson, music critic, regular guest on the TC podcast, he's in a somewhat similar place, so he's going to join me. And we're going to frame our conversation around the idea of witness. We'll also bring in some new music to consider, Bell and Sebastian's Late Developers. This is a surprise 2023 follow-up to the band's 2022 album, A Bit of Previous. Now, Stuart Murdoch, the lead singer of Bell and Sebastian, he offers another example of witness, one that connects with the ideas that Bono writes about in Surrender. So let's jump in. I'm a bit on edge about this one. Don't entirely know where it's going to go. Very glad to have Eric alongside me. Let's start with Bell and Sebastian and the Scottish band's new release, Late Developers. Eric Danielson is here to get into all sorts of esoteric stuff, ways of witness, <laughs> faith formation, maybe the myth of the sacred-secular divide. We'll see. But we're going to start, as we often like to hear on the TC Podcast, with the art itself. In this case, we're going to talk about the music on Late Developers from Bell and Sebastian. Eric, can you set the stage a little bit for us? Maybe tell us a bit about the album, which was something of a surprise to come out early this year. And yeah, let me know. Let me know what you make of it. Yeah. So I think, you know, Bell and Sebastian pretty, you know, to a corner of the population, pretty treasured indie rock band. And there had been, I think, you know, I can't remember all the ins and outs, but there had been some large gaps between records kind of in the early 2010s, um, I think, you know, four or five years between albums, which today, I mean, that didn't used to be a long time, but today um, feels like, you know, kind of an eternity. And they've now, this is their third record in four years, I think, and their second in back-to-back -back years. And so, you know, given that, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny to talk about their previous album is called A Bit of Previous. Given that that one had come out last year and it hasn't even been a full year, I think, yeah, I think folks were a little bit surprised that they had a new one already. But I always really enjoy what they do, and I really like this record a lot. I mean, I kind of see, um, I'm probably a little bit on the younger edge of kind of the generation that fell in love with Bell and Sebastian, but I kind of see them as a like a, a version of the Smiths, maybe, for this generation. You know, what they oh, do is, it's very wry, um, very funny, very melodic, but, but also pretty melancholy. And Stuart Murdoch, the singer, is always kind of 
the smartest guy in the room um, when he's on the microphone, but he's also willing to let you in on the joke, which I appreciate. And I think mm. their music has become just even more open-hearted and generous um, over the last few years. And so I like this album just a tiny bit less than a bit of previous, but it's still really fun. A lot of new wave still influences and indie rock influences mixed with some some chamber pop. Uh, you hear almost some choral type vocals at times that make you feel like you're in some sort of maybe vaguely agnostic church setting. And um, yeah, there's just a, there's a lot of really cool too, just musically um, trade off here between him and uh, Sarah Martin, who's their other main vocalist. She gets a lot to do on this record, which is really fun because she has a, a great voice. So um, yeah, I think it's I mean I think it's a high quality Bell and Sebastian album, and really I kind of like to think of it as kind of just part two of a bit of previous kind of consider them as kind of one big thing here. Um, and I think if you do that, it's, it's a really strong record. I like that Smith's comparison a lot, actually. And I think you're probably right about the generational thing. I was in on them pretty much from the start and uh, I'm a, I'm a bit older than you, but I'll admit this is the first Bell and Sebastian album um, that I've really sat with in a while. I did check out a bit of previous last year and for whatever reason, you know, gave it a listen or two and then just failed to to go back to it. But revisiting it in the light of late developers, which I like quite a bit, it did remind me of why I was immediately drawn to them when they first broke out with, you know, two quick albums in 96, Tiger Milk and then If You're Feeling Sinister. So yeah, if you right. go back to the beginning, they, they put out two in fairly quick succession there. So we're talking 96. I just graduated from college and was probably in my most pretentious music phase at that point. <laughs> And so this Scottish band that has this academic air, the clever references you described, the indie instrumentation, yeah, while still being playful, uh, it was catnip for me, right? But thankfully, the music was solid. So I did have that to back me up and and kind of um, make a little more sense of me adopting them so quickly. I got to say, though, it wasn't until years later that I would start to read or even hear a few things about lead singer Stuart Murdoch, possibly being a Christian. And I didn't really track that down immediately. It was more something that just, you know, came across in passing. But in 2010, I finally came across this blog post from our friends at Mockingbird uh, called Bell and Sebastian Go to Church. And there, David Zoll links to a Paste interview where Murdoch details his committed church life. So he talks about singing in the choir, leading youth group, and he does talk about his faith. So I wanted to read a portion of Zal's post, Eric. I think it describes Murdoch's music as a form of witness in a way that might help set up the rest of our conversation. So here's Zal. Murdoch's songs aren't vehicles for his ideology. There's absolutely no attempt to convince anyone of anything, and also no humorless exercises in introspective mysticism. Call it authentic, call it unartificial, whatever you want. Christianity is so clearly not a source of insecurity for him. It's simply a fact of life. So that's David Zal. Mm. Now, Eric, I I want to know, you know, without getting into faith-proofing, I don't think that's what either of us are interested in here necessarily. Right. I mean, there are more recent interviews where Murdoch has talked about incorporating Buddhist practices into his spiritual life. So, so this conversation isn't about claiming Murdoch in any way. But more generally, I would like to know what you thought about Zal's description there, his his characterization of one way to live as a person of faith within a wider creative context. Yeah, well, shout out to David Zal. I love that guy. Um, it's good to, good to talk about his words on the podcast. Yeah, I I think he's right on. I mean, I, I don't disagree at all. And I think just hearing that quote again, it kind of struck me like how interesting that is. He says, you know, authentic, unartificial. There's such this, you know, 
level of irony to Bell and Sebastian's music that it's it's kind of beautiful and, and paradoxical to me that ultimately then when you dig in, you say, oh, it's actually, there's no artifice here. It's it's all really authentic and, and there's a beating heart there. Yeah, I, I think that's right on. I mean, I we were talking a little bit about your you know, your history with the band. I think the first record of theirs that I actually listened to or, or remember listening to um, was more like 2006, The Life Pursuit. And then I eventually went backward and forward, both with the band. But um, I remember listening to that record and really thinking that, kind of what David's saying, that religion, that faith, that the church, that all of those things were accepted as just forces in the in the universe to, to Stuart Murdoch, that he, those things were a given, you know, they were a part of kind of just the texture of the atmosphere around him. And in many ways, he was able to, in his lyrics, really both suss out, like David is saying, what's authentic about that environment, what's authentic about our religion, what's authentic about our faith, but also what's absurd about it, you know, and, and mm. be able to push back on things, especially socially and culturally, that he feels like the church and I, I'm assuming probably a, a Catholic background has done. So yeah, I think that's right on. I think I think there's kind of a, however you want to put it, you know, I, I can't help but think of like the Flannery O'Connor line about like God-hauntedness. It feels like there's that to their music and it's mined both, I think, for earnestness and humor and critique in, in, in their stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's all I play for sure. Now, again, if we want to set Murdoch's current convictions, whatever they might be aside, I'm interested where you may have heard that God-hauntedness still in the latest Bell and Sebastian album. Are there any instances in late developers, or if you want, if you want to go back to a bit of previous, you know, that's that's fine too. Any instances that, you know, echo the gospel, as we like to say here at TC? Yeah, so I think kind of perfectly the way that you've set this up, without necessarily saying that he's providing a specific answer or a specific prescription for this. I mean, there's moments on this record where it's clear, especially late in the track list, he is really fighting hard not to be cynical um, and wanting to find something pure and have faith, you know, in something in this world, whether it be people or, or, or himself or something else. There's also a really great verse on the song, when we were very young, where he's basically saying, I wish I could be content kind of with everything that's going on around me. I wish I could be content with the work that I do, with, you know, he says, with the football scores, um, not in American football, obviously, um, mm-hmm. and all of those things, and and is clearly saying, like, that's not enough for me. And so there's this reaching for some higher plane, for something more pure, for something more spiritual. He never names that, and I don't think he has to, for it to be satisfying or, or resonant with, with listeners. But yeah, I think there's just always kind of this grasping for for not being satisfied with the status quo. And I think on their early records, maybe that took, you know, when they were in their 20s, that took a little maybe cheekier, more cynical, you know, that grasping for more took on a little bit more biting tone. Here it feels a little bit more earnest to me and a little bit more just kind of wishful that that there would be something more to life than just kind of what's going on around us. Yeah, when we were young, it's one of my favorite tracks too. And the other thing that I was drawn, the other track I was drawn to on this album was I Don't Know What You See in Me, Mm, uh, particularly along these lines. First off, it's that exhilarating use of synthesizers, which I'm a sucker for and and the band (laughs) likes to incorporate from time to time. But then these lyrics here, you know, they're expressing disbelief that, that someone could see something worthwhile in this insecure singer. And then 
the joy in realizing that. You know, I think that's that's the next step that the track I don't know what you see in me does encompass. It's you know, and on the one hand, this is one of those tricky cases where it could be romantic love that is being sung right. about here, or it could be a God love song. And I think it's always kind of awkward when we combine those two. But that being said, I do think there's a real surprised by joy quality to I don't know what you see in me. There's this ecstatic delight in in realizing that we're loved despite ourselves. And it did make me think of, you know, Psalm 138, though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. So I love how their music, Bell and Sebastian's music, has it opens up a space for these sorts of connections without forcing them or yeah. without not allowing, as you said, critique or some second guessing or uncertainty, I guess is a way I would put it as well. They, they seem to have a nice balance in that way that resonates with me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think, you know, it's always interesting. Uh, I know we're gonna we're gonna talk about U2 in the next segment, and they're kind of the classic uh example of this in in at least in the last you know few decades. But you know, these songs that you're not sure if they're about a girl or a boy or about God. And you know, it's interesting, like we we talk about those things sometimes as if it's this surprising phenomenon. But, you know, I, I think that just puts Stuart Murdoch in company with, you know, going all the way back to the mystics, you know, in the Christian church, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that there are so many songs that, or even poems or, or pieces of writing that we would read now and go, are you, are they, you know, a little too serious about God here? Is this about somebody else? Like, what is the, what's going <laughs> on here with these emotions? And I think that blurring of those lines is absolutely one of the things that makes um, Bell and Sebastian interesting. And I think, again, like what Dave was saying, Dave, it's all that, you know, it's kind of God is just kind of in the atmosphere no matter what. It it, it brings even a greater complication to those lyrics and, and honestly makes it more fun to me. I, I think it's more fun to kind of think through that, see how I would even apply those lyrics who I'm thinking of when they're singing, you know, um, mm. and and kind of how that works. So yeah, interesting. So anything else you want to touch on regarding late developers or a bit of previous before we move on? No, I don't think so. I just, I don't know, you know, if if uh, listeners haven't spent a lot of time with the band, I, I really would encourage it. You know, it's, again, they, they can be kind of dour sometimes, especially in the earlier stuff, but it's always really fun. If, you know, if you if you can appreciate even the littlest bit of kind of sarcasm and, and smirking, you're going to get to some really great stuff. And I, I think they're just one of those bands that we'll probably look back on it at some point, you know, a couple of decades from now and think, why weren't they a bigger deal even than they were? Because they're just such great songwriters, so... Well, let's go from Scotland to Ireland then. Eric is going to stick around so we can talk Bono, talk U2, and that band's brand of witnessing in just a moment. First, some music from another witness, T-Bone Burnett. We think, we think, we don't know, we don't know. We're afraid, we're afraid. Hello, 
John J. Thompson here, and that was a little bit of T-Bone Burnett's Mother Cross from his amazing Invisible Light project, and it's just one of the tracks from the latest mix I have assembled for you all, this time around the theme of witness, examining the idea of testimony, testifying, and on another level, what it means for people of faith to work in the general marketplace of creative ideas instead of cloistering in an exclusively Christian world. To be honest, this particular idea has been the prevailing theme, or at least one of the most persistent and pervasive questions in all of my work since I established the original True Tunes as a teenager back in the 80s. I remember reading a quote from T-Bone, who had been a sideman for Bob Dylan and was an emerging solo artist and producer in the early 80s, which said, and I paraphrase, that he believed that as a Christian, he could either write songs about the light or about what he observed by that light. He was channeling C.S. Lewis as he said that, and it opened a wide vista for me as a kid who was passionate about art and was looking for some creative water to walk on that was firm enough to handle that kind of confidence. It also occurred to me that in many cases, the emerging construct of Christian music as an industry was more about who that music was being marketed to than what the music itself actually was. It's been incredible to see the influence Burnett has had in the music industry and in the culture at large over the last 40 years as well. So if this is an interesting concept for you and you'd like to pull on more of these threads, you might find the conversations we're having over at the still relatively newly revived True Tunes podcast interesting. And I think you'll find this Spotify mix pretty fun to listen through as well. I found songs that explore the concept of testimony and witness, from a variety of perspectives, and some songs from artists who have been working out their salvation with fear and tremolo in the mainstream for a long time. You know where to find it, and you know where to find me, out there where I hope to always be, in the waves, listening for the good, the true, and the beautiful, and singing along. Peace. So, Eric, we're both big U2 fans here. One of your favorites, you'd say? Favorite bands ever? Yes, the ranking always shuffles in my head a little bit depending on the day <laughs> and who I've heard last. I think I place them solidly at number two consistently. Their their descendants in Radiohead uh, at some point supplanted them in my in my esteem. Uh-huh. But, um, absolutely one of my top favorite bands. I mean, Octung Baby, I've written about for TC, my favorite album of all time. Um, so yep. definitely not, uh, you know, only casually interested in in those boys. <laughs> good good to get your pantheon there um, right. at the top. So even though they're one of my, probably my number one, I've got a somewhat strange history with this band, especially as a kid who grew up in a Christian home. I was attending a Christian school when I first started listening to them in the late 1980s. But I didn't realize that you 2 were comprised mostly of committed Christians when I first heard them. It's somewhat similar to Bell and Sebastian in that I, it was the music for me first, you know, that, sure. that attracted me. And no one in my church or school circles was talking about them as a Christian band either. So just didn't have that frame of reference. And sure, I mean, I recognize the religious references in the Joshua Tree in 1987, but that's not unique to rock, right? To have those sorts of references. So it really wasn't until years later that I came to understand the depth of spiritual commitment held by Bono, Paul Hewson, uh, his real name, Dave the Edge Evans, and Larry Mullen Jr., uh, those three in particular. And looking back now, it does seem that they, especially Bono, I would say, have long held a posture similar to that described by David Zoll in that Mockingbird post about Bell and Sebastian. I think this phrase from that post seems to apply, Christianity was clearly not a source of insecurity. 
Though, as Bono's book makes clear, Surrender, they did struggle with how that played out day to day and still do in some ways. And again, that very much reminds me of the strange space I, I remember being in and still in some ways find myself in. So, Eric, tell me, take me a little bit back. We know where U2 stands for you now, but tell me a little bit about your own history with the band and maybe your experience of them as a, you know, quote unquote Christian band. Yeah. So I, again, just came to them. I mean, we're just different enough in age to have like a slightly different uh, entry point. I mean, I came to them with Octung Baby, which I think now, of course, I think is just as, you know, spiritual a record as Joshua Tree, but I didn't really maybe hear the hints of it as much. You know, as like a 12-year-old, it didn't really possibly connect in the same way. But I think I was really drawn to them as a band. I mean, of course, they were have this huge sound and Bono has this, you know, really charismatic voice. But I also just, I think as much as I could understand at the time, I really appreciated the way that they seemed to be a band that, you know, looked inside, acknowledged their own inner monologue and their own doubt and and despair and heartbreak and all of those things, but also seemed to look outward, you know, and, and we can we can talk about all the you know, political and social things they're involved in, but, but it was clear even just in the music that they weren't solely looking inside, but had, you know, a focus that, that went broader than that. Um, and I think, you know, it, at least it's been this way for me with art that a lot of times something resonates with you and you don't understand why until a long time later. And I think that was mm. the case with you too, where I, I really didn't know the background. And and even frankly, like, you know, reading his book, Surrender, there's there's a lot more filling in the details, filling in the gaps of what their faith journey looked like. I certainly didn't understand that in the early 90s, but it seemed like this music was saying something that I needed language for. And it, it would kind of just be later on, I think, that I would come to see how much of that was related to my own faith, to my own struggle to practice my faith in a way that, you know, wasn't just either about fulfilling, you know, laws and obligations and rules, but also wasn't just about my own personal, you know, practice that was just solitary. Um, mm-hmm. And then those, those songs really began to form, I think, my imagination and my language for what that all could look like, even if I didn't realize at the time that that's what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, that is totally, as you described that, I can realize the same trajectory that I went through in terms of understanding more and more what was in the music that I could find that, as you said, gives gave me the words or the feelings um, right. for, for what I was thinking or trying to think my way through to be more to be more accurate. So yeah, let's turn to the book, To Surrender. And again, I described it as like a spiritual memoir. What what was it like reading it for you? I mean, it's it's fun. And and I, I don't know if fun's the right word, but it's there's something satisfying about getting into a piece of art from someone that you've spent so much of your life with and having it deliver exactly what you think it will. And, and, and that may sound boring, and I don't mean it that way, and I can maybe unpack it a little bit. But, you know, I, as someone who, I think I've even said this before in our conversations on the microphone, if you know me, I am an incredibly earnest person in so many ways, and yet also, you know, really struggle with you know, just my own emotions and and depression and things like that. And Bono's writing here is exactly as over the top and earnest and, you know, <laughs> lavish and prodigal as you would expect it to be. And that's a that's a really beautiful thing in a sense, because it's it's not that I'm bored by it or that, you know, he just did exactly what I thought he would do, but it's almost like the deepening of a conversation or the deepening of a friendship where that person is still exactly who you think they are, but you just get exposed to more and more of it and you get to see more and more of, of who they are and what makes them tick. And so um, I'm not quite done with the book yet, but it's been just a real joy to kind of see all that. And also, like I said earlier, to, to fill in some of the gaps, one of the biggest gaps for me that I, I've always kind of wondered about and wanted to learn more about 
is his relationship with his wife, Allie. Um, and just all these yeah. years, I thought, who is this woman? And like, what is her <laughs> constitution that she is able to, um, to to not only put up with, but really love this man? And um, she just comes off like the coolest person in the world in this book. And just somebody I would love to like, actually like sit down with and talk to. So yeah, it's just been a really cool journey and, and a really beautiful thing to kind of just deepen that connection with with his work and his his way of thinking. Yeah, the parts about their marriage are fascinating. I've long wondered about that as well. And I think it reveals some things, but understandably not everything, but sure. enough to, as you said, fill in some of those gaps in a way that that I found encouraging. But yeah, as you talk about, you know, getting more Bono, that's that was maybe I had a little reticence about reading this because for all my curiosity, I didn't know if I could could take more Bono. And I say that as someone who admires him, but that that earnestness you talk about, and it it is doubled and tripled down on here, but it allows for some vulnerability. There's great yeah. vulnerability here as well, which I admired. And I found passages that I absolutely treasured along the lines of, again, filling in the gaps, as you said, in terms of their faith journey and what this meant to them. Because they are, and Bono even, are a bit oblique in the music, in the art about what that might mean. And being a person of faith, I was just so curious to learn more. And I think for me, it was the earlier chapters that were really fruitful as they talk about wrapping their own minds around these questions when they were, I mean, heck, teens, right? Or in their early 20s. They describe themselves, or Bono describes them as fervent believers when they were youth group kids, essentially. Fervor is a word he uses. So they were very serious about their faith. But at the same time, the three of them, Bono, Edge, and Larry Mullen Jr., and then along with Adam Clayton, who didn't identify as Christian, they just wanted to be in a rock band, right? Yeah. These were just kids who wanted to be in a rock band. And so Bono's descriptions of trying to navigate those two things did fascinate me. And I want to read a little bit of him talking about that. So at this point, he's recalling a conversation with the couple who led their church at the time. And this couple wanted them to use the band. This is especially um, after their 1980 debut, Boy, which was a big success. They wanted them to, to be more explicit in their witness. And so here's what Bono writes about that. We tried to explain, no doubt in a clumsy, naive way, that maybe our generation needed verbs, not nouns, needed to be loved, not lectured. That bumper sticker Christianity was driving people away from their churches. I tried to convince them that our group could serve God better if we served the gifts we'd been given, that surely heaven would be happy if our band was a success and we'd have the means to help others a little more here on earth. Now, Eric, when... When I was that age, again, late late teens, probably early 20s, dreaming of an unlikely job in a creative field, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have articulated exactly that way. But that line there, serving God by serving the gifts we'd been given, I think would have been very comforting and, and encouraging and showed me a potential path maybe. What were you thinking as you were reading these passages? Uh, what did they bring to mind to you, especially maybe in terms of how you've thought about your faith and your creative calling? Yeah, I... <laughs> I appreciate that so much. And and I might bring up another passage too that I think from the book that really pairs with it here in a moment. But um, sure. the more that I think about it, and I'm sure someone could quibble with what I'm about to say, and I probably would quibble with what I'm about to say on you know certain days and certain moments. But I really think that there is, uh, of course, I've kind of staked my life to this, that there is there are common goals between art and faith. Um, and one of them is that we would understand ourselves more 
for the sake of becoming most ourselves. You know, if we believe a Christian narrative, we believe that there was something that we lost fundamentally about who we are um, and our relationship with God in, in the garden. And I and I think that so much of our lives here on earth is, is recovering that in some way, reclaiming that, not becoming somebody different, but becoming most ourselves, becoming who we were created to be. And I think that it's so easy, and, and I don't know if you experienced this growing up in the church, I certainly did, you know, just with this couple was, I, I think, you know, probably with good intentions trying to do to these guys, which is to pigeonhole them into certain vocations, um, pigeonhole them into certain labels, pigeonhole them into certain ways of talking and speaking and singing and being. And I just don't think that that ultimately honors that goal of becoming most ourselves. It's trying to shape somebody into somebody that they're not for the sake of a certain purpose. When people, I think, you know, they were trying to do it because of evangelism. If you want to talk about evangelism, people are drawn to people who are living beautiful lives, not people who say all the right things. Mm. But evangelism isn't certainly the only like dimension of our faith, right? Not by a long shot. And so if if the point is to become the people that God made us to be, then yeah, honoring those gifts, listening to those gifts, trying to faithfully handle those gifts really matters. He says later in the book, he says, we need less to be told how to live our lives and more to see people living inspirational lives. I'm also deeply conscious that I can't live up to the badge I've pinned on my lapel. I'm a follower of Christ who can't keep up. I can't keep up with the ideas that have me on the pilgrimage in the first place. And that might be my favorite passage in the book um, at this point. And I think it resonates because if our faith is about getting everything right, if our faith is about fitting into certain confines, then I think our faith ends up becoming, you know, something that strangles us. But if our faith becomes something that allows us to be free, which I think is one of the main points of the gospel, if our faith is something that allows us to really step into God's design for us, then there's flourishing, you know, everywhere to be found. And I think that that's what those guys were in search of. And again, you know, he probably has language for it now that he didn't when he was 20 or whatever, but like, that's what they wanted. They wanted to flourish and they wanted to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And yeah, everything about that just feels right to me and feels resonant to me. Yeah, I earmarked that passage also and found it incredibly helpful, true to my experience, true to what I've heard in their music as yeah. well. And I think the idea of pigeonholing is apt because this was a group, they didn't know maybe because of their age, their life experience, like they didn't know the answers to these questions. So right. to be suddenly propped up as someone who did or a group who did, who had all the answers and are going to project that would have just been falseness in, in the terms you're putting. It would have been, you know, not true to who they were then or potentially to who they should be when they did reach flourishing. And, you know, I, I think also, there's an honesty. This goes back to the vulnerability in the book. I don't think Bono would say, this is one thing I really liked. And it does, he gets, he circles back to this in the later chapters. I don't think he would say like the band has figured all that out now even. Right. Right. It's more about looking back and seeing how, oh, these were some of the ways maybe we've been used. And the maybe is crucial there. Um, and he also owns up to like mistakes that <laughs> that he has made in particular as sort of, you know, perhaps the main driving force of the band, where he's taken them and those sorts of things. So I think that just echoes back to your idea of pigeonholing people, especially in a creative or an artistic field. I mean, that's what that's going to kill art, right? Is right. to, as soon as you start making it, um, 
worrying about it more being a message board or a bulletin uh, board, something like that, or a billboard. You know, that's that's not going to allow for art. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, I, I just think back to my own experience um, growing up in the church and just how much of the time I spent trying to say and do the right things and how that, um, I mean, we can talk, it's, you know, some other day about what obedience means, but like, trying to say and do all the right things and how much that just choked the life out of relationships with other people because I then wanted them to say and do all the right things, you know, and it didn't allow for that. It was just kind of this like, this like machine that kept turning over trying to get to a certain point. And I think too, you know, we, we may hit on this a little bit as we go, but like the idea of being a Christian band, you know, I, I was reflecting back, I think in a piece that I wrote last year or something, um, I don't know, all this stuff blurs together for me at some point, thoughts that I've had and things I've written on paper, but that there were so many bands that I grew up listening to that said the name of Jesus a whole lot in their music, but it was so shallow and it, and it felt like it was, you know, meant to fill a quota. We have to say it this many times in a song for people to get what we're talking about rather than presenting kind of the contours and and, and the stuff of faith and love and hope and trusting people to connect the dots for themselves. Um, and so I mm -hmm. think with what these guys had done, you know, they have placed a lot of trust in their audience. As much as a lot of people, you know, think Bono's always hitting these certain themes over the head, you know, they have placed a lot of trust in their audience to, to, to find something in it and not just prescribe for them how to think about the world or how to think about God. I don't have any time or space in my life anymore for art that doesn't do that, you know, that doesn't place some sort of faith in the people who are receiving it and rather feels like they have to spell it all out or else the message gets lost. Um, I just I just don't have time for that anymore. And I think maybe some of that instinct started with you two. I think maybe those guys kind of set that little spark in me that's kind of, you know, grown into a bigger, a bigger fire. So let's go there. Let's let's talk about this idea of a Christian band, of a Christian music critic, of a Christian film critic. And I want to use another great passage to kind of get us there. Here, Bono is discussing that exact question, right? When people would start asking them, is U2 a Christian band? And so I do wonder if um, his answer sort of resonated with you in terms of, if you're ever asked, are you a Christian music critic? So here's what Bono writes about that. I wanted to make music capable of carrying our own weight, even the weight of our contradictions. To be in the world, but not of it, was the challenge in the scriptures that would take a lifetime to figure out. As artists, we were slowly uncovering paradox and the idea that we are not compelled to resolve every contradictory impulse. So I am going to ask you that annoying question, Eric. I'll, I'll answer it myself too, don't worry. But And I enjoyed, I should say, I did enjoy Larry Mullen Jr.'s explicit response to this mm. question that Bono shares in the book. But are you a Christian music critic? Or, or here's, here's a variation that has more nuance maybe. How would you describe your witness, especially in wider creative circles? So, so how do you navigate being a Christian in non-Christian spaces. Yeah. Um, you know, you told me we were going to talk about this and I still haven't really come up with a satisfying answer. Um, <laughs> Good, because I'm but, in the same place. <laughs> yeah. I I think that it's hard for me to call myself a Christian writer or a Christian critic in large part because of the cultural associations with that. You know, I think of, sure. and, and no offense to these folks if they're out there any, by any chance listening to this podcast, but, you know, I think of the, I won't name specific websites, but people will know what I'm talking about. You know, Christian pop culture sites that, you know, their main purpose is to count up the number of swear words in a movie or, you know, that sort of thing. I'm certainly not that. I 
I go back to what he talks about, about not having to resolve every contradiction. And I think that life just gets really small when you have to resolve every single chord and you have to resolve every single idea. Um, and so, you know, what he describes, I'm, I'm, I swear I'm dancing around this answer, but I'm going to come back to it. <laughs> um, what he describes there, that's where my, that's where I want my writing to be going. I think that's where it's going that, you know, I'm willing to take a lifetime to, to work through these ideas, knowing that I won't fully figure them out. Um, the idea of writing that carries its own weight or even the weight of contradictions, that's, I am on board for that. That is absolutely <laughs> the project that I want to sign up for. I think for me, I, I don't know that I would call myself that. And I think, you know, then you get into the semantics and I feel like this was all over the pages of like CCM Magazine in the 90s, but like we're a band who happens to be Christian. I don't even know yeah. if I like talking about it that way. Hmm. If I were to talk to people about it, I, again, it would be this long windy thing that I'm doing here, but I think I would just talk about how I just think there's a lot of mystery in the world. I think human beings are a mystery. I think God is a mystery. I think, you know, beauty is a mystery. And I am someone who's interested in plunging all into all of those things. You know, the great fiction writer Ursula Le Guin has this phrase, it's actually in my Twitter bio right now, about the idea of being the realist of a larger reality. And I think if I had to like pick like a four or five word <laughs> phrase, maybe I would just quote Le Guin on that and say, I'm trying to be the realist of a larger reality. And that's what I want my writing to do is to plunge into that reality, but to also not allow reality to be confined to, you know, kind of these smaller uh, things that we see and do every day. So that's a real great non-answer. Um, I, don't, I don't think I could call myself that, but I think that I would try to explain it in that way. And I think that is how I've tried to explain it to people that to me, writing about God, writing about music, writing about people, it's all the same thing to me. And I'm endlessly mm. fascinated by all of it. And I don't need to finish a piece, an essay, an article, an interview, and know the answers to anything. I just want to keep thinking about it until my reality gets bigger. It's all the same thing to me. That sounds very familiar. That's helpful. Yeah. Um, I'm going to steal all of that because I don't have an answer. Either. <laughs> <laughs> but um, all of that does resonate. And particularly that description, I've never seen the contradiction. I even think back to, again, when I was in college. And in my mind, there wasn't a contradiction. Not that I could answer it then either, there just wasn't one, but there seemed to be one being placed upon me from the outside, from all different directions, right? From this cultural stigma you talked about from outside Christian circles to the expectations within them. And these were all things that were kind of coming at me from the outside. And so, you know, going back to, to you two, Christians who wanted to be in a rock band were a little bit to your CCM definition there, but I was a Christian who wanted to be a film critic. And yeah, this got tricky when I graduated. Again, we're looking, we're thinking about the culture wars of the 90s, the late 90s, and trying to find a place to be both things where there wasn't a contradiction. It wasn't easy. I mean, there were definitely the only avenues, clear avenues in terms of Christian media were the ones you're talking about, where you would get a sheet and your job as the film critic would was literally to count the swear words. And I think you said, that's not me. I mean, that was kind of my immediate reaction is it wasn't like I had some sort of ethical objection to it, though you could, it was more like, I don't know how to do this. Like, I, <laughs> right. I've never watched a, I've never watched a movie this way. I would be bad at this. Yeah. Uh, that kind of goes back to maybe honoring, you know, the, the form of the craft or whatever. I don't know. So, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm grateful for a place like Think Christian, being able to do this is because I don't, while we need to be mindful of discernment and those who listen and read us as well, absolutely, and where they're coming from, 
I don't have that contradiction in my head doing this work as well. So sometimes I also answer this question when I get it, you know, out speaking or something. And I don't know, you can call me out if you think this is a cop out, but in terms of audience a little bit, mm. you know, if I'm doing like a, a podcast like Film Spotting where there's a mainstream audience or out speaking, you know, leading some sort of lecture for a mainstream audience about film, I just keep in mind like what they have come for, what I've been invited yeah. into that space yeah. for, right? And then so if I'm called to speak at a Christian college for chapel, well, what what have I been invited there for? And think about, you know, that audience and bringing different elements there. Maybe that's a cop-out, but I also like to think, you know, I, I'm leaving space for God's movement in each of right. those places to kind of take it further rather than kind of leading where I want it to go. Am I just trying to convince myself that that's an easy way to think about it? I don't know. What do you think? I don't think so. I mean, I one of the things that I preach a lot when I have the, it's not very often, but when I have the opportunity to talk about just what journalism is and what it does and what writing is and what it does, I talk about the difference between a relational approach and a transactional approach. And to me, what you're talking about is a relational approach. I we have been called together by whoever to consider something together. And I want to be a part of that conversation. I want to be in relationship with you and, and consider that thing. To me, it's more the the whole, I, the, again, this is kind of a lazy, uh, a lazy example, but like the whole count up the swear words in the movie thing, that is a transactional approach to talking about culture. It's yes. saying, I'm going to let you know what you need to know so that you don't have to stain yourself um, with you know these dirty things of the world and then you can go on and I can go on and we never have to have another conversation about this. Whereas really getting into the mess of where God chooses to show up, which is not only where his name is invoked and where God chooses to show up, which is not only in things that are conventionally beautiful, that takes relationship to process. And so, you know, I want to write in a way that satisfies something in me, but I, I cannot help but think about my audience when I write because I want even if it's just a few people, I want to find people who are going to come along and have a conversation with me maybe for years about these things. And they're going to read me and they're going to see me contradicting myself. They're going to see me, you know, <laughs> um, saying things that I later have to go back and kind of like uh, nuance or massage because mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what life is and that's what faith is to me is, is this constant conversation that God has invited us into. So that's a long way of saying I don't think you're copying out unless you know unless you're just doing it to get out of some hard questions. But I don't I know you well enough to be not doing that. Um, but, but I think there's something to that. I think there's something to say. You know, Paul talks about the idea of like being all things to all people. And I, I remember reading something really yeah. wise once that said, you know, there would be people who would come along and probably really chastise him because they, you know, they said, well, you're you're being different, or you know, does this mean that you don't believe in, in some sort of absolute truth because you know you're you're kind of changing the way you are. And it's no, he believed that God's world and, and whatever God's truth means was big enough to apply to a million different situations. And he was going to chase it in that situation the way that it needed to be chased. And so I don't, I don't have a problem with that because I think that if people were kind enough to me and, and merciful enough to me to add up all those pieces of my life, I hope mm. that they would find some sort of internal logic there and some sort of internal consistency. Yeah, yeah. So... And to be clear, you know, 
we both mentioned the counting swears thing. And as I become a parent and have been for many years now, <laughs> I, I will say like there are some helpful uses of places like that. I've gone sure, to say common sense media just to know, you know, I want to be prepared for what my kid is going to encounter sure. um, just to be a, just to be a good parent. So just setting that out there that um, yeah. we understand there's value in that in some way to some degree. I, going back to surrender, I mean, we, you know, we've been emailing back and forth about this conversation and stuff. And so I want to make sure some of the things you mentioned in some of those emails you have a chance to talk about, uh, if there's anything left that we didn't touch on. Obviously, there's a ton in the book we haven't even gotten into, but uh, anything along the lines of this conversation before we we close it off that you wanted to add? Yeah. Um, and again, I too don't want to just like totally rail on that way of doing things. I've had lots of great conversations. And, but that's the thing, again, it's a conversation, um, not a way station, like with people who've said, you know, I appreciate all that you're saying about this. I still can't watch XYZ. And I always sure. go, that's great. That's fine. Like yep. my point is in life is not to convince you to watch something. Um, totally. It's to help you think through the reasons why you're doing that. But I think one other thing I would say, just, just in this conversation and maybe as a challenge to people who are listening, but also a challenge to myself. You know, I think it's so easy to come across a piece of work, whether it's a a film or a book or a, a record or even like a painting in a gallery and just say, you know what, I, I don't really get this. This is not for me. And just kind of move on. And I would never suggest to anybody that you have to like everything equally. You know, part of being human is having taste. And if you if you get into something and go, you know what, this isn't really my thing. I'm not convinced that you have to spend hours and hours pouring over it. But I think one of the reasons that faith and art connect for me in such a real way is because behind every piece of art is a person. And I want to know more about who that person is. And me just dismissing something and saying, I don't get this and moving on immediately, I think it's akin to saying, I don't get this person and I don't really have an interest in trying. And mm. to me, God is endlessly, like he made us, but he's also endlessly fascinated with us. And he is also endlessly curious about us. Um, and he wants us to image him in that way, imitate him in that way. And so for me, part of the reason that I feel like I can pursue what I pursue as a Christian and a writer is that I believe that God has placed that kind of curiosity in each one of us. And I want to keep running it down, you know? Mm. Um, and so I would just, you know, encourage people to think about that, 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 you know, all of these traditional values that we talk about and the fruit of the spirit and all of these things are absolutely part of who we are meant to be in our makeup as Christians. But I think one that we don't talk about enough is, is just this grand curiosity that God has placed in us. And I think the more that you chase that, again, it doesn't mean you become like me or become like you, Josh, or you have to watch X, Y, or Z, but mm -hmm. it's going to lead you into some surprising places culturally. And that can be a really, really beautiful, powerful thing. And, you know, going back to the theme of this podcast can allow you to bear witness to some things that you might not have otherwise. And so I would just always encourage people to be curious because I think God wants us to be curious. Yeah. I think I've found that in terms of film criticism, increasingly a curiosity you said about the artist, which is true. But for me, it's also about the audience for certain yeah, films. Sure. So I've become more interested in, you know, particularly when I was younger, if I didn't like something and other people did, it would kind of be like a, what were they thinking type right. instinct I might have. But the more I do this, and especially as diversity of opinion has exploded with the internet in responding to films, it's not just channeled, you know, through one venue as it used to be. I'm more curious about what did I miss in that mm. movie that this particular person or this group of people with these experiences are connecting in 
with this movie. And I think there is a faith element of that because yeah. it is a, a way of loving your neighbor and it is a way of learning about each other. And it's also, you know, curiosity, curiosity is going to draw you to mystery. And the paradox for me of living longer as a person of faith is feeling less sure in a sense that I'm recognizing how much mystery there is to that. Mm -hmm. And one way to move forward in that for me is to be curious about it rather than yeah. to be frightened about it, but to be not only curious, but excited about it, right? And see that as possibility to experience and learn about. And the only way I can do that, I can kind of do it maybe by reading a book on theology. I can do it certainly by worshiping within a community, but a lot of times I do it through art and it, yeah. and it may be art that doesn't even necessarily to bring me, doesn't necessarily mean to bring me to that place, but somehow it miraculously does. And I think that's behind a lot of what we do at TC is to create, make those spaces for that to happen for people. Again, not for everyone, as you said, doesn't mean you have to watch everything, listen to everything, but we are hopefully opening up spaces where that could happen for people who have that curiosity. Yeah, I think that's a really good, a really good word. And I, it makes me think of um, the writer David Dark, who's done a lot of great work around faith and pop culture. And he talks in one of his books about everyone has what, they, what he calls an attention collection. These are the, the cultural artifacts and the situations that, that you kind of gather in around you and, and really devote yourself to. And I think, like, just like you said, you know, when we're always asking, who is my neighbor, asking, what are what does my neighbor pay attention to gives us a really great answer to that, hmm. right? Um, and so the more that I am able to not only create my own attention collection, but you know, give a little bit of love to somebody else's and not immediately dismiss it because it doesn't consist of all the same items as me, there's a real beauty to that. And there's a real depth to that that I think again gets us to that curiosity, like you said, of you know, not just who is the maker, but who is my neighbor. What are they giving their their attention to, and what are they giving their their love and affection to? I think that's a, an important question as we just try to relate to anybody. So, well, we will link to that David Dark book and a couple of the other sources we referenced uh, in the show notes for this episode, in case people want some more some more ways to continue this this conversation. Thank you so much, Eric. I mean, I knew we'd find our way through this, but I, I really have enjoyed enjoyed doing it with you. So, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And I just feel like maybe we should like do this again every couple of years so that we can like <laughs> make the so answers, right. you know, let the answers contradict themselves, uh, uh, but not resolve them, as Bono would say. No need to resolve exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You're so right. I mean, it's, yeah, we <laughs> could easily do this in a couple of years, if not sooner. So sure. maybe we'll get to that. Remind real quickly before you sign off here, where can people find some of, maybe in the spirit of this episode, some of your more secular work? Point them that way. <laughs> Oh, but it's not secular work. Uh, no, 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 go to that rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I, the easiest place to find me is um, mostly on Twitter at Eric Danielson, which my name is spelled weird, but it's in this episode. Um, I'm also cross-posting, you know, some of the the lists that I make every week and just kind of things that I'm paying attention to. Again, in my my attention collection on Instagram, same handle, or you can find me at ericdanielson.com. Thanks again, Eric. I appreciate you quite a bit. Uh, thanks, Josh. Good time. This thing is real Put away that gun This part is simple Try to recognize What is in your mind God help us Help us lose our mind These simple people Help us understand What's the matter with him He's
Talk about a sacred secular mashup. That's patron Saint Mavis Staples performing a cover of Talking Heads' Slippery People at a 2014 concert celebration on her behalf. Wynn Butler and Rajin Shusain of Arcade Fire also appearing on that track. There are many ways to witness. I hope this episode doesn't come across as an argument for one singular correct approach, but I did want to have a conversation about how one way of witnessing resonates with me. Now, bear with me as I share one more bit from Bono's Surrender. Why am I always talking about the scriptures, he writes? Because they sustained me in the most difficult years in the band, and they remain a plumb line to gauge how crooked the wall of my ego has become, to getting the measure of myself. This is where I find the inspiration to carry on, the exhortation that makes this struggle with the self workable, the wisdom that makes it doable. I feel like that's the same for me, whether I'm talking here on the TC podcast or somewhere outside of Christian circles. It's not so much that you need the gospel, though you do. It's more that I need to hear that gospel message over and over again. Maybe continuing to listen is its own form of witness. Thank you to Eric Danielson for listening to me on this episode. He is also a generous, encouraging presence on Twitter if you want to follow him there. You can find him at Eric Danielson. We're on Twitter, too, as well as Facebook. Just look for at Think Christian. And yep, we are on YouTube. Just search for Think Christian on YouTube. You'll find video versions of the podcast and other video content as well. If you are watching us on YouTube right now, you missed out on a couple of tracks from the Spotify playlist that John J. Thompson compiled for this episode all around the theme of witness. Search for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassley. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith. 